and welcome back to the Martial Arts Mania Podcast. I'm AJ. And I'm Gavin. And a happy 4th of July, or I should say 5th of July when this episode gets released, but a happy (laughs) 4th of July to all of our American listeners and everybody around the world. Happy 4th of July. Our freedom is your freedom. Woo! America! Uh, neither of us can really sing, so we're not going to sing the national anthem or, uh, any other songs. But if you sing it, I'll stand and weep. Yeah. (laughs) I would say the best you're going to get from me is the original Monday Night Football, uh, theme. Which is pretty American. come on. It is. Yeah. I forget how it goes, but it it, was Are you ready for some football? Football! Yeah. uh, Hank Williams Jr. got himself in some trouble, uh, and then was replaced by Kerry Underwood. Yeah. Yeah. To be expected. He's uh he's he's a bit of an interesting character. So, anywho, here we are. Welcome to our our packaged July 4th American Independence Martial Arts Mania podcast episode. Woo! Yes, and we have an awesome Americana movie for you today. Definitely still martial arts. This one was uh a combination of both of our ideas. Uh Gavin because originally I was like, all right, let's do a kung fu movie, whatever, blah, blah. And then Gavin's like, oh, we should do a movie by so-and-so. And I was like, oh, well, how about this one instead? And then here we are talking about one of my all-time favorite movies, a definite kung fu comfort film. And in my opinion, probably the best overall film from this actor's library of work. We may agree on certain aspects of that, disagree on others. But anywho, how are you today, good sir? I- I'm doing quite well. Uh, enjoying the weather. It's It's heating up over here in Southern California. And uh, I'm sure it's nice where you are. So yeah. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in the Central Valley of California. And for people that don't know, because a lot of people don't know this, people envision California pretty much as, I, I feel like this is how people that have never been here and only see it from the movies and so forth. They envision it as like LA, 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 Bay Area. And that's it. No. So there's this big central part of the state appropriately called Central California. Uh, And that is where I was born and raised. That is where I live now, a little farther south than from where I grew up. But it is notoriously hot in the summer, especially where I am now in the Fresno area. This is just hot, hot, hot. We had triple, high triple digits this weekend. So it was 110 degrees. Uh, And yeah, that is very, very hot. Dry heat, luckily, not humid. But very freaking hot, but I'm sure that equates to like nice beach weather in LA. Oh, it certainly does. And, and I, I'm in downtown right now. So it's, it's, you don't get that cool sea breeze, but um, it's warming up. It feels, it's starting to feel like summer because we definitely had June gloom as they call it mm-hmm. running almost all of May and all of June, except for two days, maybe in June. So it now feels like summer. And for people that don't know, uh, or I, I'm sorry, uh, so I, as I said, this weekend was quite hot and it got to 110 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 43.333333 degrees Celsius. So pretty hot. Uh, it will get hotter. It'll probably be up to like at the hottest, like last summer, I think it got up. To, I, we may have got to 120, like desert weather. It was, it's, I mean, Climate change is is a real thing, whether you want to believe it's a natural thing or it's uh, we have exacerbated the issue. But I think it can be argued that there's definitely changes in the climate. But I think, you know, 
It, is it changes it is. four times a year, yeah. spring, summer, fall, winter. <laughs> there you go, my man. There you go. Uh, okay, so. These colors don't run. Woo! G- Gavin's all in today. America! So, any news? Any martial arts movie news? Well, a, a package was delivered to my house oh, this did you, week. Did you get your vinegar syndrome delivery? Indeed, I did. I got uh, two great DVD. Oh, no. Blu-rays. Blu-rays. However, (laughs) Gavin still doesn't have a Blu-ray player. Luckily for him, I will be coming down next week for the next New Beverly uh, Hong Kong screening. So, by the way, next Monday, July 10th, correct? Yes. Yes. I, uh, Gavin and I will be attending the New Beverly double screenings. It is not martial arts films per se, but they are Hong Kong films. So if you're going to be around, come uh, say hello to us. But anywho, I will be coming down. I will bring my spare Blu-ray player so that Gavin and I can have a Kung Fu night where we watch these new Blu-rays he has. And do you want to share what films they are? Oh, uh, absolutely. I got The Iceman Cometh with uh, the wonderful Fish Out of Water action Kung Fu film with Yun Wan, Yun Biao, mm-hmm. and Undefeatable with our sensei, or with my, my Sifu, Sifu Don Nayam, and and the Hong Kong version, which I have never seen, the Bloody, Bloody Mary Killer. Bloody Mary which, Killers. Obviously, this is uh, with uh, Cynthia Rothrock. This is one of her great vehicles from, from her era of straight-to-video. And we've talked about how we both love this film. I saw this film very early on on Action Max, on Cinemax, and I loved it. Uh, still love it to this day. I'm really excited to see it on Blu-ray. I, I've watched, I think, most of Bloody Mary Killers on a really bad YouTube rip, so I'm excited to watch it on the Blu-ray. Now, what's interesting that I just found out recently is, and I didn't know this, and I actually sent you something on Instagram, but you don't check Instagram. Uh, they did the exact same thing with Honor and Glory. Did you know there's a completely I different Hong no Kong idea. film? Yeah. So, no idea. Uh, yeah. So I, maybe they'll do that film as well. And we've talked about how we love that. But either which way, I'm excited for some kung fu movie watching. Uh, definitely some acai bowl eating. Definitely some training with our sensei, Peter Sugarfoot Cunningham, at least for me. Hopefully, maybe you can make one of the sessions. Uh, and then also some Hawaiian barbecue. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we'll, we'll then we'll definitely take a run on the beach. We, we have our routine. Uh, so yeah, if anybody's going to be around, come out to the new Beverly. We love to hang out and chat with folks and, uh, yeah. So other martial arts movie news, uh, obviously warrior season three dropped. I have not even started it yet. I'm really weird when it comes to shows that I enjoy and love. Sometimes I, I'll take forever to start them. It's like, I'm, I'm hesitant. Maybe it's something inside of me that doesn't want them to be bad or, I'm I'm afraid. I think also what it is is I'll get hooked and I'll be like, okay, mm-hmm. we'll watch an episode, and it's you know it's the evening, and I'm like, all right, now we're on our fourth episode. Like, yeah, you know, I can't control myself, so uh, it'll probably still be a little while because that's how I was with I believe season four of Cobra Kai. It took season, me for, just season four. Well, I mean, I, no, actually, <laughs> you're correct. So it took me forever to even give it a go because I I and I've talked about this on the podcast how. The original trilogy is so important to me, and Gavin been trying to get me to watch it for years, back when it it premiered on YouTube, uh, the original first two seasons. And then when it finally got picked up by Netflix, I finally gave it a go. And then I remember 
that was when season three came out. So I watched the first two and then I watched season three and loved it. And then season four though, I waited forever because it was another one of those things. I was just like, how can it follow up season three? You know, that was so good, blah, blah. Then I finally watched season four. It was actually about only two months before season five came out and just loved it. So I will watch Warrior eventually, but uh, in the meantime, I finally finished The Mandalorian which is very nice. Yep, we we enjoy that. I'm not a huge uh, Star Wars fan by any means, so but I do love The Mandalorian. It's probably one of my favorite uh, entities within the Star Wars universe. And as Gavin knows, I did go and see Indiana Jones yesterday. And obviously this is not martial arts related, but Indiana Jones is one of the greatest action-adventure trilogies, the original one of all time. And I, I absolutely love the film. So growing up, it's like kind of like, not that you have to be one or the other, but I was not that into Star Wars. I was super into Indiana Jones. And obviously, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was a huge disappointment for me when that came out. I was in college. I still remember going to, I believe, a midnight screening of it when it came out and just being very disappointed. I loved the new one. I, I thought it was great. As I said to Gavin, it's obviously nowhere near as good as the original trilogy, but I mean, how could it be? But it is a very, very good film. It is a worthy final entry. It is a lot of fun. And yes, it does obviously utilize a lot of CG. But the difference between this film and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which I believe was 2008, is the CG is now far superior to the point of where even when they're utilizing it within action scenes, they can still make you like cringe by some of the stunt work like you know people falling off a moving vehicle and you go oh even though it's not real it's it's gotten to that point now where it's it's pretty darn good so that being said very enjoyable good plot good pace great performances uh, i'm i'm looking forward to it. seeing what uh seeing the film and seeing how shia labeouf turns out <laughs> uh spoiler alert he's not in it for sure <laughs> uh but anywho so, um, any other martial arts movie news? Uh, oh, it appears they are now in post-production of, on The Last Kumite. I just saw that today. Oh, very, that's new, fast. Yes, yeah, That's new, like that, you know, hats off to them. They're doing it like a straight-to-video sh- shoot. Yeah. And Three weeks, in I, and out. Yeah, I saw some pictures, and it from just from the brief pictures, it looks like they kind of replicated the original set from the first Bloodsport movie. So, I don't know. Very I'm, nice. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued, especially when... Uh, you see some of the people behind the scenes as well. I'm like, I don't know. Maybe this will be uh, pretty good. I hey, I'll, I'll stay optimistic. Me too. There's no reason not to be. I mean, it's it, that's one thing I, I do. I do appreciate about that straight to video genre and straight to streaming uh, genre as well. Is so many of those films are passion projects, yeah. and even with the the glitches and the gaps here and there that we we encounter when watching these films. You, you you feel the heart. You feel the heart. Heart and soul, baby. Heart and soul. Just like the movie we're talking about today, which embodies the heart and soul of America. So before we get into talking about the film, do you have some movie quotes for me today? I do. This first one. So all the movie quotes are from bona fide American martial art movies. First one is extremely easy. If you don't get this, the podcast will end. Okay. Not because not because of anything I do. The The universe will combust. Got it. Which, I real quick, to... is actually very interesting because I was just about to say, and I, I'm not sure if the... So, Gavin's in a new room recording today. He has now... He put down the blinds behind him because when we first started, I could barely see him because it was so blown out from the light. But it looks like you're in heaven right now. 
I'm not <laughs> no, sure. You I know. It's it's a soft glow square. behind me. It's, it's a really... very soft white glow. Like this, and because of the angle where my computer is and where I sit, so I'm slightly below it. I look up at Gavin on the screen. It's like this is what I would see when I'm ascending to heaven. If if heaven is a place on earth. <laughs> yes. Okay. And you would be greeting me at the pearly gates, but we just went down a really weird tangent. Anywho, my friend. Well, it sounded like you were about to quote a song. Well, I, I was just—I did say the lyrics to "Heaven Is a Place on Earth," right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so this one's easy, super okay. easy. Like I said, world com- uh, podcast combusts. Otherwise, I want you to be nice until it's time to not be nice. Oh, another great, great American film uh, that is perfect for 4th of July. Really, it's perfect for any holiday. Christmas, uh, Hanukkah, you name it. But that would be Roadhouse. There you go. Uh, Speaking of which, the new Roadhouse is coming out at some point. Yeah. I still don't know how I feel. Haven't haven't heard much recently. Yeah. Interesting, because like it was hot and heavy. And then with Jake Gyllenhaal doing the whole... UFC appearance and them filming at an actual UFC event. Uh, yeah, really weird now that you mentioned that. Yeah. Hmm. And um, that does not inspire confidence. But anywho. It'll be released in five years with the next John Cena, Jackie Chan film. Oh. Okay. What's that? Okay. Next one. Next one is not so easy, but if you can answer this question, if you can answer this quote, you'll impress me. Okay. You ready? Yeah. Okay. Impress me. Hmm. It's it's on the tip of my tongue. And sometimes, like, I'm one of those people, if I sit, sit there for five minutes and just let it swim around in my, my brain, I'll be able to figure it out. But this one, it's like, I know it. So even if I've got to edit a little bit, uh, okay. Say it again. Say it again. You did a good job saying it. Okay. Impress me. <laughs> oh, man. I'm trying to emulate the, character, the actor uh-huh. as well as I can. I can give you a quote from a different movie nope. by that same actor. No, 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 no. Okay. Impress me. Uh, Lady Dragon? No. But. But. So it's. The actor in Lady Dragon 2 is the one who so, outed this That's what I meant line. to say, Lady Dragon 2. Sorry, because yes. it's Billy Drago. I know yes. it's Billy Drago, and I can't think of what movie it is, though. Hence why I was going with Lady Dragon 2 is what he, I meant to say. He doesn't, he doesn't do too well in this film. He doesn't live that long. Uh, which one would that be? Which one is he killed off early on? Is it not, uh, It's definitely not Martial Law 2. No. Uh, it's definitely not Delta Force 2. No. Uh, I don't know. You're going to have to give it to me. Oh, I feel, I feel like you do. I feel like it's a very patriotic film. Oh, Invasion USA? There you go. Oh, but I don't even remember him being in that. He's the, he's the guy sitting at the table. And, uh, I think the, the communist invaders are on the other side of the table trying to sell him something, trying to buy arms. So he says, okay impress me got it. that you know what that makes sense because that was 85 if i'm not mistaken and that would have been a little yeah. before like even his first big appearance in the untouchables and so forth so yes. okay good one good no that, that that was good that you you went to lady dragon 2 pretty right. quickly so i knew you were on the right track yeah well you got me 
One out of two, not bad. But now, let's talk about the film we are discussing today for our special 4th of July episode. Today, we are talking about the 1983 American neo-Western martial arts action classic, Lone Wolf McQuaid, starring the one and only Chuck Norris and featuring a villainous turn by Kwai Chang Kane himself, David Carradine, with a supporting cast that includes Leon Isaac Kennedy, L.Q. Jones, Robert Beltran, and the lovely Barbara Carrera, and directed by Steve Carver, who directed a previous film we discussed, Eye for an Eye with Chuck Norris. So, here we are, Lone Wolf McQuaid. What a film, what an opening to the film, what it is, it is as Western as you can get for any of Chuck Norris's films. Mm -hmm. It is as big as you can get for any of Chuck Norris's films. Mm -hmm. It is as spaghetti Western as you can get for any Chuck Norris films. That is a subgenre of uh, sort of Italian uh, film making for Western films. Uh, It is as James Bond-esque as any Western Chuck Norris film could be. Okay, I like that. And then you got a huge, crazy villain. You've got a, a unique villain in a, in you know the 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 vertically challenged actor. You have the, you have Barbara Carrera. You have you have great. You have all the elements of of what you would want from a from a Bond film from a. Western film from an over-the-top film and also from a film that is meant for big box office draw. Yes. And right out the gate, we should address the fact that this film is heavily inspired by the work of Sergio Leone. And they've talked about that. And that's okay because they're not, uh, it's inspired by, but not ripping off or trying to replicate or even being too derivative of uh, the work of Sergio Leone. Uh, It's just, it's, you know, it's inspired by, right? And they say, well, imitation is the greatest form of flattery, but I wouldn't even say they're imitating. They're just utilizing that same style. I mean, it's, it's like when American filmmakers remake uh, an Asian property or film that they were inspired by and want to directly remake that film. This is not that case because it's a whole new separate storyline, everything. But they're obviously, they were going for that feel. They were going for the Spaghetti Western feel in a contemporary setting of America. And they pick the perfect location, El Paso, Texas. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the entire film is shot in that general area. Uh, Jessica saw a bit of it with me and she's like, are you sure that's not New Mexico? Because where she was born and raised. And I was like, yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's Texas. She also lived in Texas for a while too. But so definitely inspired all the way down to the musical score by uh, Francesco De Masi, which is his own original work, but of that same sort of style as Ennio Morricone uh, would do for the spaghetti Western films, especially the Man With No Name trilogies with Clint Eastwood. But you don't hear that and think, oh, wow, what a copycat. No, it's just of a similar style and tone. That's the film overall in a nutshell. And just getting that out of the way right there, the filmmakers here do a fantastic job of creating a unique original film that is obviously just heavily inspired and made in the same style and tone of the Sergio Leone spaghetti Westerns. Because quite frankly, I I love this film. It's my favorite Chuck Norris film. It is a fantastic action, uh, modern day Western film. 
But I mean, it is no once upon a time in America, right? Or excuse me, once upon a time in the West. Definitely not once upon a time in America. So it's definitely not once upon a time in the West. You know, it is not uh, for a few dollars more. It is not the good, the bad, and the ugly. But it's a damn good action film. It, it certainly is. I mean, I know we we could go back and forth and have have a really nice in-depth conversation about what is the best film that Chuck Norris is in. And Code of Silence might come up in that conversation, or it would. But when you talk about the best Chuck Norris film, like if you think about Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando or Stallone in Rocky or Rambo, those are vehicles for the lead actor. This is that. Code of Silence is a little more ensemble mm-hmm. if that makes sense. This film is, so by that qualification, this film is certainly Chuck Norris's best film. Although I do have a soft spot in my heart for Hitman, and I know you have a soft spot in your heart for Psychics. Yes, uh, but <laughs> most definitely we both do. And we <laughs> I enjoy Hitman as well. And it's interesting you say that. Code of Silence is definitely an Andrew Davis film. Now, if you could call him, and I would, it's interesting of like, action directors, especially American films and stuff. There's not a whole lot you'd call auteurs when you look at the definition of an auteur. Andrew Davis may fall into that category due to the fact that the repeat elements across all of his films. Mm -hmm. And Code of Silence is definitely an Andrew Davis film over a Chuck Norris film. It is. Yes. It is. Yes. Maybe like you said, technically, if you were to take the films and their critical consensus and the overall performances and the storyline, et cetera, et cetera, Code of Silence may be his quote unquote best film in that regard. But I argue that as far as a Chuck Norris vehicle overall, this is his best film. And on top of that, it's also a very unique entry in the fact that we've already discussed. It is a contemporary modern day Western, which is really hard to pull off. I mean, obviously, Westerns are typically set in the 1800s. Uh, there's been a few that have tried, you know, the early 20th century. The first one that comes to my mind is Last Man Standing, right? You know, and uh, even. The Quick and the Dead may have been early 20th century. I can't recall with Sam Sam Raimi's The Quick and the Dead, which is, you know, a a great film also. But when it comes to doing a Western in a contemporary setting, I feel like some have tried, but you don't really see it that often. Or it's more, maybe it's even unintentional. People are like, oh, it's a Western. Well, for example, I had a professor in grad school that claimed there was no action genre. It's the Western, and he would get so angry at me when I would try to even counter. He was a very interesting individual, but uh, and I completely disagree with him to this day. I mean, yes, he has a PhD. I do not, but anywho, so his argument was- He sounds like a regular Wyatt Earp. Yeah. So his argument was there was no action genre. It is the Western and everything's evolved from that. But so this film though, without a doubt, from the opening sequence, like you said, you know you're in for a special treat. It, it opens up. It lets you know, hey, this is what we're going for. This is a modern-day Western from the music, from the scenery, from the kind of cool uh, lens effect they're using and the fact that there's just a wolf. <laughs> and it's just a very beautiful opening sequence that segues into an opening action sequence. And the, the setting as well has that desert look and feel, right? Difference is, this film's actually shot in America, whereas most of the spaghetti westerns, if not all of them, were shot in Italy. 
No, it, it, great point all around. Great points all around. I mean, it. This film is so unique in in and of itself, and I, you know, we were you were, as you were talking, I thought at one point you were going to say that it's also perhaps arguably the best uh, David Carradine film. Oh, I mean, I thought you were going to go out on a limb there because well, there that's are some not really good- that's not really fair for me to say because honestly, when it comes to his uh, film library of work, I haven't watched all that much. And really, I've just kind of watched the stuff that is martial arts related. For example, well, you, you, Circle of no, Iron. That, that's, yeah. You know, that's completely fair. Uh, same same here. I've seen a few of his Westerns and he is a, he is a fine actor. Oh, uh, when, that, people forget that. Undoubtedly. Yeah. yeah. But there there was a, you know, there I did some research on this film. You know, I've seen some interviews before and I rewatched a couple of interviews. One is an interview that Chuck Norris gave with Bobby Wygant. Okay. And uh, it's just from publicity back in 83, 4, 5, when he was talking about the film. And he says that he thinks that this film is, up to that point, Carradine's best film and is going to launch him in a different direction because up until that point, he had never played a character like this. There is one movie he did with Walter Hill, not to go too far down a, a rabbit hole, The Long Riders. It's pretty fantastic. It, it That is more of an ensemble piece about the Jesse James gang. But... uh I just want to like I want to give some credit to David Carradine because in this film his charisma is off the charts and there's a scene where he gets off of the helicopter and you know we always see people running from the helicopters hunched over or you know people running from explosions and like you know not reacting he's a tall man and he gets off the helicopter and he walks and he he doesn't walk he saunters mm. he does the David Carradine saunter saunter like with the sand, dust, gravel ripping up all around him. And just watching that sequence, I'm like, he's 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 a presence on screen, which we already know. And I, I'm, I'm kind of leading into a point that we're going to probably talk about later. Like one of my pet peeves of a lot of American martial art films is usually your main bad guy in a martial art film does not have the martial arts chops of your main protagonist. Mm-hmm. Often your your top fight sequence happens not including the main protagon- antagonist unless they're like, you know, helping the antagonist along. This is one of those occasions where you had an antagonist on in the storyline that could carry the scene in a very, you know, could carry the film in a way sort of like a Yoon Wah carries uh a film, but anyway, I, I've like gone down a rabbit hole, and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna yield the floor back to you so we can get back on track. No, uh, those were all amazing points. In fact, it's funny sometimes when Gavin's talking, and I think he l- looks at me in my face. I may be because I'm literally going in deep in thought uh, off of what you're saying, <laughs> and I'm analyzing it. And I'm like, sometimes that look, just like Jessica, just gonna be like, "Don't roll your eyes at me." I'm like, "Oh, I'm not rolling my I'm uh, my eyes are more rolling in the back of my head like a computer. I'm like, like processing everything. You know, because you made some amazing points. And the thing is, in this performance, you're right. His charisma is off the charts. He is the ultimate villain. And he's getting to play in this, like in a martial arts film, action film, the villain, whereas he, you know, is most famous for playing Kwai Chen Kane, the very soft-spoken uh, Shaolin monk. Uh, you know, obviously he was not... Asian or Chinese, and that's a whole nother thing to discuss. But uh, you're right. He he at least had at that point enough stunt training and martial arts training from previous work to be able to 
uh, hold his own in the scenes. Now, to try to compare him to Chuck Norris in skill level yeah. is like no. apples and oranges. It's, it's not there because they do a, a very good job of uh, building the fight scenes around his abilities. And Aaron Norris is the stunt coordinator, and I'm assuming fight choreographer as well, and probably him and Chuck worked it. Uh, out together and it's funny you actually see Aaron Norris pop up as two different thugs I just caught it this time watching it you did okay yeah, yeah. I, I only so, caught him once so he's in the bar right uh, yes when Barbara Carrera punches him but then the scene where they storm that textile factory he's the first guy that also attacks Chuck Norris really yeah so it's the, the first part actually that. has a few lines and stuff the second one's just a blink and you miss him but uh anywho th- they really build the scenes around Carradine's abilities which and I'm just going to say this. He was not a good martial artist. No. Uh, not at all. And there, there's this, there's a quote attributed to Chuck Norris. I don't know. I've never heard him say it, or I've never seen the footage where suppose he says, oh, David Carradine's as good of a martial artist as I am, an actor, implying that he's a terrible martial <laughs> artist. I don't know if that's, he really said that. Uh, I read that in my research for this. I think actually maybe Sifu Alex has said, uh, talked about that a few times on the Kung Fu Genius podcast, but because honestly, like even his one of his most famous kicks that he'd always do on Kung Fu and Kung Fu Legend continues, the pump front kick or the scissor front kick, as it's more popular called nowadays, even that is not that good. He does a lot of crescent kicks. And that comes, I think, from his dance background, because uh, he did have a, a sort of dance background before doing the Kung Fu series. But you, you don't ever really see him throwing any roundhouse kicks definitely no uh, not any spinning even spinning back kicks are really you know no no yeah, yeah. Ev- ev- everything is like within this tight frame going straight forward there's nothing right it, it, there's but what Go they ahead. do a good job of with the ending fight is the contrast in styles whereas chuck norris is a very hard korean style and they have David Carradine's character utilizing a kind of soft kung fu like style with some uh, almost kind of like a mantis type thing, and I believe that has to do with the training he did receive on the kung fu series. So it, it gives it an interesting feel, and he does they they do a good job. That well, I'm going to say the Norris brothers, under the assumption that they work together, do a good job of choreographing the scenes around David Carradine's abilities. And also it goes to show the kind of star and actor Chuck Norris was because in the final yes. fight, first of all, it's maybe outside of obviously his fight with Bruce Lee. It's it's one of Chuck Norris's best fight scenes. And Absolutely. he gets beat up too. And like to let someone like David Carradine, who in real life is, you know, a, a faux martial artist, right? That's made a career off of this sort of, and, you know, and Chuck Norris, to let Chuck Norris, to have Chuck Norris let him land big shots to hurt him to injure him it just shows he didn't have an ego right he was he, trying to he make was the doing best what was best yeah. for the film exactly absolutely he because he could have gone on and been very hard about like no this is not happening he could have he could have dictated the scenes uh, going back to that interview he gave with bobby y gant and i'm sorry if i'm mispronouncing her name he essentially said um uh, this was the first time he was working with an actor where he was concerned about getting hurt because that he wasn't sh- sure the actor didn't know how to control his kicks. Mm. So he said, there are ways that you throw kicks that aren't going to hurt you. Right. And that's usually not bending the leg. And he would see David Carradine, I'm kind of quoting, so that's why I'm going David, like would bend his leg and he's like, oh, this one's going to hurt. And so he would have to take the hit. And then roll. And then director Steve Carver was telling him, 
roll more. And he says, I can't because I have to, I have to take it before I can roll. Uh, it was, it, you know, he, she, then she was like, oh, so you probably don't want to ever work with him again. He goes, no, not, a, not at all. He says, as, as an actor, he says, there's a lot I can learn from him. And he says, I think the on screen, on screen chemistry that you, you captured that was captured because of, because of our differences, um, was caught in the film, but he did, you know, in this interview, he did say to, to Bobby that he said to David, like, I'll eat it if you hit my body, but if you hit my face, I will, I will reta- not retaliate, but I'll, <laughs> I'll answer you. He yeah, says, so, you can't hit the face. Yeah. That's like that, the same thing, like in sparring, you know, I always give people a warning if you're going to go hard. All right. You know, I'll give you the warning. Then you go hard again. I'm like, I'm, I'll tell people like, I'm going to go as hard as you go on me. So yes. if you do that again, and then, you know, people, sometimes they just don't learn. And then you just got to go hard back and you're like, okay. But uh, so, yeah, before anything else, let's get into the plot real quick. So we have our protagonist, J.J. McQuaid, played by Chuck Norris, who is one of the top Texas Rangers. Uh, and for our listeners that maybe don't know, I'm assuming most know simply from Chuck Norris's later work, Walker, Texas Ranger, which we'll talk about the quasi-similarities between the two. Anywho, the Texas Rangers are a uh, law enforcement agency in Texas. They are unique in the fact that there are no other, like, quote-unquote, rangers in any other state. Uh, Obviously, you have army rangers and stuff. But not only that, they don't have uh, a limit on jurisdiction. So they can go anywhere, if I'm not mistaken, anywhere in the state of Texas and investigate and work. They have special investigative units. Uh, They are a very unique high-level and respected uh, law enforcement agency. And I believe there's only 100 agents at a time in the Texas Rangers, something like that. Maybe it's the high 80s, low 90s. I forget. I used to know a lot more. I'm Obviously, we're huge Walker Texas Ranger fans. So anywho, J.J. McQuaid, he's one of the top Texas Rangers, but he's also a lone wolf. He likes to work alone. He doesn't follow the rules. He doesn't play by anybody's book but his own, but he gets the job done. He has more felony arrest than any other Texas Ranger, but his superiors would like to see him be a little more civilized, to have class, to have style, whereas his style is he's constantly covered in dirt and mud. You're lucky if his shirt has sleeves. Usually when he's on the job, it does. Uh, He drives a old, beat up, dirty, actually probably not that old at that time, but just dirty, filthy, is it a Dodge Ram supercharger? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think is what it is, a souped up you know, uh, SUV that just, but literally just filthy, covered in mud. His office is a mess everywhere. His house is just a a pigsty. Jessica's watching a bit with me this morning. She just looked at me. She's like, that'd be you. Like if she wasn't around and I'm like, well, <laughs> I, yes and no, I am not a tidy person. I'm kind of all over the place, but I, he literally has garbage and stuff everywhere. That would not be me, but and your refrigerator would be a little healthier than exactly his. that too. His is just beer, so he's a beer drinking, karate kicking, Texas Ranger, Americana, uh, ex Marine, right? So he he embodies everything of what it is to be a good guy, but he's not as uh, civilized as maybe he should be. He's also divorced. He has a teenage daughter. Uh, and really his life revolves around his work. He just works 24 seven. So the beginning of the film that we talked about shows him busting up a Mexican cartel. 
uh, in which he takes them all on on uh, by himself. This is our first introduction to the fact that this character will be using martial arts, where he gets to do two fantastic judo throws. And mm-hmm. that's the thing people forget, and it's really hard now to find the real information. Not that I maybe ever really found it to begin with, but just like with Donnie Yen's Wikipedia, it says he's a fifth degree black belt in Taekwondo. No, he's not. So Chuck Norris is like stuff. Yes, he is the founder of his own system. The Chuck Norris uh, fighting system is now what it's called. Previously, it was Chun Kuk Do. It's part of the United Federation, United Fighting Arts Federation, I believe. And now it's just called the Chuck Norris system. So he's created his own style. Uh, so he's obviously the founder, 10th degree black belt in that. He is, if I'm not mistaken, a 10th degree black belt in Tong Sudo. That is his background. That's what he learned when he was stationed in Korea. So he's extremely high level in Tong Sudo, multi-time world karate champion. If I'm not mistaken, the last six years of his uh, point karate career, he was undefeated. Uh, he is also very high level in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. At this point, though, I don't think he had even started training Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but he did start way before like everybody else in Hollywood. It would have been around this time uh, after taking a trip to Brazil on vacation and just was like, I want to see martial arts stuff that's going on. He was one of the first guys to actually bring the Gracies over and so forth and train with them in America. We're talking years before the first UFC. He introduced them to Richard Norton too. And that's how Richard Norton got in so early, like years before the UFC. Uh, But the thing people forget is he is very high level in judo, having trained under Gene LaBelle. And if I'm not mistaken, so for example, you look on Wikipedia now, it says he's like a third degree black belt in judo. If I'm not... uh, I don't think he actually ever earned his judo black belt. He has earned his black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu after years of training uh, with the Machados. But he, I believe, has a brown belt in judo under Gene LaBelle, which is still, uh, that's the belt before black. And the difference is you see how good his judo throws are. And he does it a few times, but in this opening scene, he does two very nice judo throws, a kick. And I know I just went down a tangent of Chuck Norris's martial arts skills, but... I think it's important because in this film, he gets to sh- showcase and utilize the like the stuff that he's best at. Some hard sidekicks, some good spinning hook kicks, spinning wheel kicks. Uh, and it's interesting because in this film, you also see him throw what would be like considered the the spinning wheel or spinning hook kicks. Whereas throughout the Walker series, he mostly did what I call the spinning reverse crescent kick. And I think that probably has to do with the fact that he was, you know, younger at this point. I mean, he was 43 as opposed to being in his fifties in Walker where maybe he couldn't open up his hips the same way as crazy as that sounds. But so you get to see him really almost like at his peak martial cinematic martial arts abilities yes bruce lee made him look his best in way of the dragon obviously but by this point he had already been working in front of the camera for about 10 years and i i feel like we really get to see chuck norris be chuck norris in these fight scenes i i i think what we have here considering where the evolution was when he was we were see when we watched an eye for an eye is we finally were able to capture the full essence of Chuck Norris that like that that you can feel the pain in his heel when you see him kick things does that make sense like yes. the uh there are a couple scenes in uh the original missing in action there's one scene where he's i think somebody's hiding in a closet and they pop out in his hotel room and you just feel like oh this is his real power mm-hmm. on screen you, i i felt that a little bit while watching an eye for an eye but it's it's so not so jumpy, but so cut so oddly. Mm. This film, we get to see what he can do, and 
And you just like in Delta Force 2, we get to see him doing some grappling on the ground and, and some great mo- it's this this film with his judo throws, with his with his like stinging kicks, and you know those had to sting. Uh, and and his great uh great cross as well. He's got a couple of great cross and hooks in this film as well. Yeah, that's that just I- are so clean and they're they're fitting for the character as well they're kind of they're definitely more of that explosive point karate style uh and it's interesting because and we'll talk about this in a little bit but the differentiation between this character and then walker later on because this character jj mcquade is obviously a very competent martial artist they don't ever say anything about his martial arts background though which is you know and walker it's always brought up right oh he was you know kickboxing champion oh you know he's his rank in this style and this and that and oh you know he does brazilian jiu-jitsu with the machados his character in the show right and this and that but in this all we know is that you know he's a lawman and he was a marine and obviously he has real martial arts abilities because of his constant kicks. Uh, but maybe he's a little more rough around the edges. Maybe he wasn't a competitive martial artist. He was just, you know, a combat Marine and years of being a, a Texas lawman. He's had to throw down all the time. As he says in the film, if, if he, uh, uh, you know, locked up every guy that took a swing at him, half the county would be in jail. But <laughs> so anywho, we have this opening sequence. He rescues uh, these... Uh, other rangers and police officers that have been captured by this Mexican cartel. He brings them down. Uh, he arrives just in time for the retirement party for his friend, uh, Ranger Dakota Brown, played by LQ Jones, who most people would probably remember best, or at least my generation, as uh, from his role in The Mask of Zorro, where he plays uh, the three-finger Jack, I believe is the character's name. But he also had a prolific career in Westerns. Uh, he's a born and raised Texan, and was Fess Parker's roommate in college. Oh, As in well, Fess Parker, go. who played Davy Crockett, for people that don't know, in the original Disney films and series. The, uh, so one of the one of the interviews I, I sought out ahead of watching this film, uh, ahead of us discussing this film, uh, was the, it's called Award, A Word on Westerns, and that's produced by the Autry Museum. And there's one with LQ Jones where he does touch on this film a little bit. I mean, he but he has such a prolific Western acting career. And the other was uh, Steve Carver gave an interview where they talked uh, about this film as well. Uh, you know, the film director. But um, I think that's one of the reasons this film works in so many ways. Even his uh, captain, who's played by... Uh, the captain is played R R G R G Armstrong plays Captain T Tyler. And as a quick so, side note, before I forget, both LQ Jones and R G Armstrong appeared on the first season of Walker Texas Ranger, that episode reunion where they play uh-huh. old Texas Rangers. And the funny part is LQ Jones is playing a nearly identical style of character, but R G Armstrong is also playing a character just like that, like rough around the edges. Where in this film, he's the very straightforward captain by the book, but in that Walker episode, he's got a big scruffy beard and he's like, yep. "You don't drunk all the time." And oh, like, I'm gonna throw, I, I'm gonna have to rewatch that yeah. episode now. Yeah, um, it's a fun one. But anyways, keep going. But I think that's one of the reasons this film works so well is the authenticity cast around him. And we've talked about this before. What what so often sells a film is the feeling that you can get when you're on on the set. So the supporting actors are the the supporting actors bring out an element of of lineage, historical film lineage by being on set there with Chuck Norris, LQ Jones and RG uh, Armstrong mm-hmm. have this, you know, prolific television and probably 
film career in Westerns that just it just oozed of authenticity. And then, of course, you have his younger partners like Beltran. Um, well, and, let's, uh, let's, let's get into that. So okay, go ahead, go ahead. He, he arrives in time for, uh, the retirement party and then he's called into the office by his captain who we just established captain T Tyler played by RG Armstrong, who mentions all of his accolades, but how, you know, he is a thorn in their side because their annual budget meetings coming up and the paper writes about how, you know, he's a antiquated, uh, element of an old, outdated law enforcement agency, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they want him to clean up his act, and they're going to give him a uh, give him a partner, which he is not about because he is a lone wolf. But his partner is the young deputy Arcadio Keo Ramos, played by Robert Beltran, who most people would probably remember from Star Trek Voyager, because that's mm-hmm. when I remember when even I first saw this film, and I wasn't a big Star Trek viewer, and especially Voyager is more you know the next generation. I instantly recognize him as, oh, yeah, he was on Star Trek Voyager. But, and he's great. And it's a great contrast because he's this young, you know, good looking, uh, by the book deputy. And McQuaid wants nothing to do with him. But as the film progresses, he proves himself to McQuaid and McQuaid warms up to him. And you could definitely tell, all right, this is a good partnership. It's kind of, you know, has elements of uh, even both uh, Trevette and Walker's relationship, but way more extreme in the sense of, you know, McQuaid wants nothing to do with him at first. He's like, you know, get out of my face, kid. You got nothing that you can help me with. But, you know, he brings a little bit of modern law enforcement with his slight computer skills. Once again, I guess that's another comparable element to Walker. But uh, Mm -hmm. so anywho, amongst all this, he also happens to uh, run afoul of the vicious Raleigh Wilkes, played by David Carradine, who is a drug runner of the worst kind and he happens to be the business partner of lola richardson played by barbara carrera who ends up being the love interest for mcquade uh because although they're business partners that is uh lola richardson and raleigh wilkes we find out later the only reason why is that david carradine murdered her husband and forced her into business with him and so she's pretty much been captive this whole time and then she meets mcquade falls in love with him and then you know Cleans his refrigerator. Yeah, cleans his refrigerator, cleans his house, uh, and things escalate from there. But yeah, once again, <laughs> his 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 house, like at one point she goes to clean it and he gets all angry at her. And he's like, where's my beer? God damn it. Pardon my French. But, and that's the thing, you also hear him swear in this film. Chuck And Chuck Norris, from what I read, was slightly hesitant to play this character, breaking away from his kind of image. But it works so well, and it's it's such a unique character for him. But like, you know, he opens up her fr- his fridge and it's all full of, it looked good to me. It was like fresh veggies and fruit. I know. And he starts throwing it in the garbage and then starts looking through the garbage for his beer she threw away. Uh, so yeah, he's definitely rough around the edges, but amongst He's all- no walker. Yeah, he's no walker. So yeah, that's the basic setup. And obviously we also have Leon Isaac Kennedy come in as FBI agent Marcus Jackson, who's investigating- uh, David Carradine's character, being that there's gun running, so the ATF gets involved, the a- FBI gets involved, and in the end, uh, slight spoiler alert, uh, Raleigh kidnaps McQuaid's daughter, and so the trio of McQuaid, uh, FBI agent Marcus Jackson, and then our young uh, Deputy Ramos have to go to Mexico to rescue both her, Barbara Car- uh, Carrera's character, and bring down David Carradine's evil Raleigh Wilkes. Uh, so that's the basic setup of the film. We have a lot of great action throughout, as we mentioned, a lot of great scenery, a lot of great music, a lot of good, real dramatic moments. 
Uh, And even so, once again, Chuck Norris's performance in this is fantastic. Does he have a ton of range? No, not in this yet. Not yet. But he plays the character perfectly. But what he also does a good job is letting the very strong actors around him do their thing without trying to steal the scene or, you know, without trying to be like, oh, it's all about me. Just like with the fight scenes where, you know, he lets David Carradine get the best of him at some points. Same thing with the acting. So once again, slight spoiler alert, there's a scene where Ramos uh, and our character, uh, the now retired Ranger Dakota Brown, played by LQ Jones, are watching a witness that they've sort of kidnapped, uh, a guy they are trying to get information out of. Uh, that works for the evil Raleigh Wilkes. Uh, and Raleigh finds out where they're keeping him. They storm the house. They gun them all down. Uh, Deputy Ramos survives, but Ranger Dakota gets killed. And when McQuaid shows up, you know, he walks in, sees the dead bodies, and then he sees uh, Deputy Ramos just sitting on the couch crying because, you know, there's nothing he can do. And this now friend of his has just died and Chuck Norris just sits behind him. It's, it's just a great, subtle, dramatic, there's no lines, there's nothing, it's just he sits down, the music's perfect, he lets, and he lets uh, Robert Beltran do the heavy acting, even without mm-hmm. words, just the physical acting, the tears coming down his face, the crying, and once again, it's very subtle crying too, but it's, it's, just a, it's a powerful scene in the sense of you feel the real heartache there. And there's there's a few sequences like that throughout because, I mean, Barbara Carrera is a fantastic actress. She would end up being nominated for Best Supporting Actress in the Golden Globes, not for this film from that year, but a favorite of ours, Never Say Never Again. Indeed. So she's a very good actress. And it's funny because I saw Never Say Never Again first before I saw this film, and she's so evil in that one, and she's so kind of pure in this one. It just shows her range, and I wish she would have had the chance to do more. Uh, and it's, you know, she's also just a great contrast to being the business partner of David Carradine's character, Raleigh. It, it, it's funny because the all of these actors around him are around Chuck Norris are not meant to prop up Chuck Norris, but meant to have this give and take with him. Uh, there's a lot of emotional content that, uh, you know, Barbara Carrera gives him, that uh, Beltran gives him, that uh, Robert uh Robert Carradine, David Carradine gives him. And also, you know, LQ, everybody is giving to him. And I think that the director, Steve Carver, being his second film with uh, Chuck Norris, was really able to get him to trust the process. Mm. Stay in this space with this character. Yes, there's some elements that you're uncomfortable with. Unlike Walker, Texas Ranger, there isn't a uh, spiritual side to this character necessarily present. It's not. It's not baked into the storyline. There's. Uh, there are. There are. Uh, there's a lot of story going on, and they needed him because, like I said, there is a little bit of a Bond esque story frame yeah. where a storyline where and and framing of this of this film. Like if you took this out and threw it somewhere else in the world and did it was Bond instead of uh, instead of J. J. McQuaid, you could you could rework the script a little bit to make it work. What what the director Steve Carver had Chuck Norris do from from my from my viewing is stay in the space of where your character is and let him work his way through this through essentially a very dirty world because his, his car is 
everything is dirty, dirt around him. But as his apartment starts, as his house starts to get cleaned, as he starts to take out the trash on his own near the end before he makes the decision to go south to Mexico to save his daughter, or he's already made the decision, but he's cleaning things up as he's moving in that direction. Uh, his character is more singularly focused rather than just trying to solve everything. He's trying to now solve, hone in on this one thing. And so the film itself is actually subtle when it comes to his character's growth because he's a very firm character and you don't see this. The The story arc of his character is not so much in your face, even though there is Barbara Carrera there as essentially his moral compass trying to guide him. It's a, it's a subtle guide and everything that every shift that J.J. McQuaid has in this film is, despite being a not-so-subtle individual and being bumping into everything and 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 causing havoc wherever he goes in, in many ways, his character's adjustment is subtle. Amazing, amazing textual analysis. Now I'm like, I got to go back and rewatch this because that is, I never even thought about that, the involvement of his character and the subtlety of it. Uh, especially towards the end there. So that's amazing. Very, very cool analysis there. Uh, we're, we're running short on time, so let's talk about a few things real quick. Uh, the action. So it's very interesting how, you know, Chuck Norris was kind of aiming to be like a John Wayne type character, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe overall in his film career, in fact, one of the critical, uh, excuse me, one of the critics uh, in their review, like and more, maybe it's one of the more negative ones, but this film did get some very positive reviews uh, from, I think Roger Ebert gave it like three and a half out of four stars. And it did do well in the box office. It grows like in between 12 to 15 million off of a, uh, I want to say $3 million budget or something, which, uh, at that time in 1983 is big money, right? Because, you know, you're not spending gazillions of dollars on, uh, marketing. So it had a budget of 5 million and it made 12 million in the United States or 15 million, according to Wikipedia. So let's just lowball and say 12. That's still a hit because only $5 million budget twice making back twice, you know? Yeah. So, uh, it, but the reason I bring it up, like wanting to be John Wayne-esque and stuff, is the fight scenes are not John Wayne-esque, which even some, well, I shouldn't say even, a lot of the early martial arts films in America replicate that same style. The big John Wayne punches, the you see him come from a mile away, they're slow, one at a time. This film does a really good job of, as you had mentioned, like fast-paced punches, really good selling of the punches too. Even the mm-hmm. the scene where... Uh, uh, Deputy Ramos is fighting uh, the super racist white guy that calls him uh, Greaser. Uh, and w- when they throw their punches and Ramos does, a, 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 I should say, Mr. Beltran does a great job of selling the punches. When uh, And we've talked about how essential that is in films like Roadhouse. So the actors and stuntmen here do a really good job of selling these hits, which contributes to them feeling powerful. Obviously, there's parts where they're really making contact. That helps too with a lot of Chuck Norris's kicks, like you said. But also... They're, they're making them, as I said, there's a sense of cinematic realism to them as well. Like, you know, a character runs at Chuck Norris and he just straight up sidekicks him right in the gut. I know. Uh, I, I, I know exactly the scene you're talking about. Yeah. And there's a few times. And when it, the scene where he kicks his brother for the first time, Aaron Norris, and then the, the second time he pops up <laughs> as a stuntman, he does it again, probably just because he's one that could take the kicks. He was yeah. trained by his brother. But yeah, just some great action there. Some great throws, like in that same sequence where Ramos is getting beat up. You know, he does, Chuck does a bit more of like an Aikido style, like throw, uh, just utilizing the opponent's energy, but it's you could they're throwing everything into them. And as far as the choreography goes, uh, 
it's we only really get one true one-on-one fight scene, the finale. And as we said, they do a really good job of building it around David Carradine's skills of what he had. It's a good back and forth. And they do a really good job of cutting and editing at the right times. So it gives it a good, faster paced feel, but you still have those moments of John Wayne style big punches, but not so slow and mundane. It's much more like big punch, big punch, big punch. And you have the fantastic music like uh, going with the tone of the fight, right? As things change, because it has that three act structure we've talked about within the fight. Good guy, bad guy, back and forth, back and forth. Uh Uh-oh, now the bad guy's taking over. Good guy's on the ground about to be defeated. He finds that inspiration to come back. So it has that three-act structure, and we see the story arc within the fight. And the music also plays to that, as does the choreography, right? And it's really a fantastic fight scene. Now, in terms of compared to, obviously, like Jackie Chan stuff from that era, no, of course it doesn't compare. Uh, But it's just a great combination of Western action with Eastern action, right? Like martial arts style. And as I said, the music is essential to it too. If you were to watch that without the musical score, and it would still be good, but not as good. Also great sound effects. Uh, Chuck Norris gets to throw some fantastic kicks, uh, but it doesn't seem too out of place. So yeah, the action overall, we get some great shoot 'em ups some fantastic explosions, some great chase scenes, some great overall stunt work. Uh, yeah, uh, the finale is definitely, it's got elements of Rambo in there. It's got elements of a Western. It's got elements of a martial arts film. So yeah, we, unfortunately we've got to start wrapping things up, but the action will not disappoint you. The film as a whole will not disappoint you. Uh, and if you're feeling like it's just too Walker, Texas Ranger-esque, don't worry. So the director, Steve Carver actually did try to sue CBS when they made Walker, Texas Ranger, for a very hefty sum claiming that they, you know, it was copyright infringement. Now, here are the similar elements. It's Chuck Norris playing a Texas Ranger that does martial arts. Really, that's about it. And you can make the argument that a Chuck Norris vehicle is always going to have martial arts. But the character, J.J. McQuay and Walker, Cordell Walker, are completely different. Night and day difference. I'd like to think that maybe a prequel, that Walker would have been a little more like J.J. McQuaid, but still not this extreme. As we said, beer drinking swearing, divorced, you know, grungy, uh, improper, you know, uh, he's a little, he's a a little, uh, he's a little, I don't want to say he's like a a little bit like a teenage boy in a man's body. (laughs) Whereas you, you know, you have a feeling like, uh, Walker, Texas Ranger growing up, uh, well, we we know the backstory. You know, he was he was the kid who was bullied, then had to stand up for himself, and so he, he different the the background the background story that you can apply to both JJ McQuaid and Walker Texas Ranger, or Cordell Walker, are uh, so divergent enough that you really it it it's like a hard it's a hard fit. I can see why the lawsuit was lost. They were they were both Marines too, technically, but once again, you know, these are very basic things. In fact. The background of Walker is so detailed, right? His Native American background, his time in Japan, all this. And well, obviously with the TV series, you have more time to establish that. But yeah, that's why. And also, you know, Steve Steve Carver, right? Our director said it was CBS and they had better lawyers. So, (laughs) but yeah, highly recommend this film. Even if you aren't a Chuck Norris fan, this might be the one to check out if you haven't seen it already. It is, it is. 
it's Chuck Norris's best film, but it's not one that you go, oh, another Chuck Norris movie, right? Like even the ones we love, you know, Hitman. Yeah, that's a Chuck Norris movie, right? Delta yeah. Force 2, which we just watched together recently, is a Chuck Norris movie. Sidekicks is pretty unique, actually. But uh, yeah, this is, you know, missing in action. Those are Chuck Norris movies. Good guys wear black. Uh, uh, good guys wear black. But this film uh, yeah. is unique. Yeah, it's it's sort of like Delta Force, Code of Silence sidekicks and lone wolf mcquade these are four distinct films that show what is the full range of of someone who comes from a who has his background who joins film there you go and uh all i've got to say is now uh i still have uh, i still have never tried pearl beer but I've gotta i know give, i gotta give it a go I'm maybe like, we could find some when i come down next week we're not big drinkers period let alone i do enjoy a nice ice cold beer once in a while but maybe if we can find some we'll have to try it out i like that and i'm gonna do you a favor i'm gonna put a bunch of vegetables in the refrigerator <laughs> so you can throw them out but you know i'm not gonna throw out the granola you i know have. that's my go-to again we'll throw it in we'll yeah we'll throw it into a, a, a stir fry pan okay so, so i have a language corner for you oh perfect but so i i grew up at lone wolf you're going to do Lone Wolf in yeah, Japanese. I love it. Now, I grew up understanding it to be one way, and I'm seeing it another way. So I'm going to tell it the way I remember uh, Lone Wolf to be, which was Ibiki Okami. Ibiki Okami. So for me, that's that's one count wolf. So Ibiki Okami. Ibiki Okami. That's good. Now... Um, what I also have is Itsubiki Okami, which I think is probably a far more formalized way of saying Ippiki Okami. Oh, Itsubiki Okami. Yeah, but let's just go with Ippiki Okami. If there are any listeners out there who say I'm wrong, so like, love, for example, the Lo Lone Wolf and Cub series is that the the name of it's it? It's different or? because oh, okay. that one's Wolf. I think that one is Wolf with Child oh, is okay. how it's actually translated. But Ipiki Okami, E is like one. Okay, yeah, and it's a one count wolf. Oh, Ipiki Okami, Ipiki Okami. We just watched Sword of Bushido. We're doing. Our Japanese is now influenced in, by in Obata-sensei. My good friend in high school, Yuki, uh, has ever listened to this. I seriously doubt it. But he used to just roll his eyes. And Yuki, obviously, is Japanese. He spoke Japanese. But my my Japanese, every time I would like speak in the little Japanese I knew, I was like, it sounds authentic, right? He's like, well, yeah, but it sounds like you're a samurai from the 1800s. Nobody talks <laughs> like that. You know, your pronunciation's correct. And the accent's technically like, it'd be like a, I don't know, like an old British accent. But... Uh, much uh, better than the language corner I was bringing today, which is literally just how to say like a Western film oh, in, okay. in Chinese. Well, and, and you know, it's very funny is when we moved back to Japan, when I was in junior high school, I spent the summer watching Abarembo uh, Shogun, which is a, a, a samurai show on TV. Okay. And I showed up to school talking like that. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then my mother's student was like, this is inappropriate. And so that's my mother's like, let's get you watching other things. Yeah. And so I think I started watching Japanese comedy and actually started speaking and talking like people in the contemporary uh, world were at that point in time. Well, it's funny because I can put on the Beijing accent 
not regularly when I'm speaking, but, you know, if I'm just jokingly saying things, I know, you know, some of the expressions. And even when I uh, first met Frank Jang and his wife uh, uh, and we went out for a lovely dinner and so forth, I, I forget what I was jokingly talking about. And I, so I just started saying some things in Mandarin with the Beijing accent and they started laughing because they're like, oh, my God, because but it, once again, it sounds like a really old school Beijing style accent. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, as I joke, you just like you sound like a pirate. Yes. I need your fun, Lama. Uh, <laughs> your fun, Lama. Oh. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> Anywho, my friend, time to wrap things up. We're Indeed. right at the perfect time. This has been fun. And I'll be seeing you in a week's time. And once again, anybody who wants to come out to the New Beverly on July 10th, come check us out. We're, we'll, we'll be, be wearing our green t-shirts. Well, at least one of us will. I think I'm going to put it oh. on you this time. And I, have Oh, I thought you were, I thought you were not bringing yours because I've got mine already ready. Perfect. And I might actually be wearing a different shirt that you gave me. Oh, oh. bring it on. Bring it on. All right, my friend. I will catch you later. Take care. Peace.